Welcome to the Non-Technically Speaking Podcast. I am your host, Ivy Shu. Here, I interview leaders in tech with a non-technical background from established leading markets like Silicon Valley in Beijing to emerging markets like Nairobi and Jakarta. We explore what business and operations-minded leaders bring to tech companies and the impact that they're able to make. I may also pop in here to solo show and share some stories of my own. I hope that all this content inspires you to confidently develop your own impactful career as a non-technical leader in tech. Join the community of listeners and non-technical leaders by visiting nontechnicallyspeaking.com. You are listening to episode five. Today, I am here with Hugh Oliphant. Hugh was my first boss at the first startup I joined in Silicon Valley. Before I go into the accomplishments of his career, I want to first say that he is the most wonderful human being, and I wouldn't be where I am today without him. Last week, I shared on LinkedIn, and if you don't have me on LinkedIn, please connect with me at Ivy Shu. Just make sure you add a note to tell me you found me through the podcast. The story of how I got my first job in Silicon Valley. I wanted to take some time and share it here. I moved to Silicon Valley after graduating and slept on a friend's couch while job hunting. It was really hard to do without a network, so I was cold messaging everywhere and mostly unsuccessful and cold applying everywhere, I mean. I found Vouch, which was a fintech company offering loans to those with low FICO scores, but a network to vouch for their credibility. They provided access to loans to people that wouldn't have had access otherwise. I really related to the company, connected with their mission to my own, uh, my own story. As a Canadian, I didn't have a credit score and couldn't get access to loans. As someone new to the Bay Area with no work experience, I couldn't get a job. Vouch wasn't hiring for full-time positions, but like many startups, they often have something on their website on the careers page saying that if you fit with us, and why not apply and let us know what you can do um, kind of portal. So I applied with a note saying, I don't have a lot of work experience, I'm a new grad, but here are three people to vouch for me and my work, including three names and their emails and maybe some quotes of recommendations from these people. I heard back very, very shortly from Hugh, who was then the co-founder and head of growth at Vouch. He asked if I was still a student and interested in remote part-time projects. I said I wasn't, but would still love to be considered for remote work um, and would still love to meet up. And it was because I was obviously broke and needed the experience. So we ended up grabbing coffee. And during coffee, I tried my best to convince him that I would work hard and learn fast. But I was also interviewing for other places and was really looking for a full-time role to move myself to Silicon Valley. After this meetup, Hugh decided that after looking at some projects internally that needed to be done, they were not short-term and they were probably not best done remotely. They were best done on-site. So maybe this wasn't the best fit for me since my timeline for projects, I said, was two to three weeks because I really wanted to land a job within two to three weeks. I asked if this could be turned into a two to three month internship instead, since it had to be on site, it was long term, and I knew that as long as I got my foot in the door, I would be able to turn it into a full time, that I would be able to do the work really well. Further emails showed that 
Hugh said that HR was out of town for the next couple of days, so he couldn't get a set offer or a set decision yet. I waited a few days with no response, so I told him I was going to be near the office the next day. Could I come over and meet and chat with more of the team? Uh, he said yes, and after that meeting, I got the offer. And two months later, after I joined, I got the full-time offer and a bump to senior analyst. And that is how I hustled for my first job in tech. Hugh was honestly such a great mentor. I sat next to him directly. It was only a 40-person team, and he patiently let me learn SQL, HTML, CSS, and all these uh, data analytics um, tools and email marketing as I became responsible for the copy design and testing of all communication materials. And unfortunately, Vouch failed to raise Series B, and we were all laid off five months later. I remember when I was taken into the room with HR and Hugh to get the severance papers, Hugh started crying, saying that he was so sorry. He felt like he had let me down. And so I started crying, and I can tell that he genuinely cared. After he fully supported me on my next two job hunts. He introduced me to countless of his contacts in very senior roles at companies. He even sat with me for a full day in my living room, helping me with a SQL take-home project. Honestly, Vouch hired so well, not just Hugh, everyone I worked with ended up leaving to become managers and senior contributors at Credit Karma, Airbnb, Uber, Twilio, Stripe, Keep Truckin', and Google. So just from those five months, I really got a solid network in the Bay Area. So that's my story of how I had the absolute privilege of working with Hugh, and I wish that it was for longer. Hugh has been a fintech leader for the last 20 years, uh, selling his first fintech startup to PayPal in 2003. He is truly one of the OG PayPalians. After working as the director of product strategy at PayPal, he founded a few more start startups, some which got acquired, some failed like Vouch, and he is now the senior director of analytics and data science at Bill.com, which recently IPO'd in December 2019 and now has a $3.55 billion market cap. All right, Hugh, thank you so much for being here, and I'm so excited to have you on my podcast. I'm excited to catch up again. Awesome. Well, I know that you've been at Bill.com. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that journey right now, just to start. I, I came over to Bill.com uh, because a former boss of mine from PayPal had asked me to, to come over and help start a, a growth team. And uh, he was my favorite boss at, at PayPal, a guy named Sanjeev Kriplani. If you ever get the chance to work for him, take him up on that. I learned so much. It was, it was great. And it was a great time for, to, to be joining Bill.com. The, the company at the time was pre-public. There was just so much to do in terms of building a growth team. It turns out there were tons of opportunities in, in product management. So how did you move into the tech industry? And I know that you have an econ degree and you did an MBA. Well, you know, I never really thought of myself as, as technical for those reasons, I, I don't have a software engineering degree. I found out that I was, I was actually reasonably technical when I had to lay off all these engineers at my first startup. And oh, no. <laughs> I, I had to pick up the slack. You know, I, I had always toyed around with, um, with coding as a kid. I never thought of myself as a serious programmer. But all that, even that hobbying around, turned out to be great experience 
for fixing bugs and and doing what needed to be done to to keep to keep this startup going. And I think it's important for people to to think about those skills not in a binary way, right? We we always think about it that way, right? We we always say, oh, I'm a technical person, or I'm not a technical person, I'm an engineer, or I'm not an engineer. The reality is that there's a huge gray area between those extremes. Right. So if you have ever played around with Scratch, that is a technical skill that quickly develops into other useful software engineering skills. Right. You might not have a software engineering degree, but you can learn this stuff. SQL skills is a different type of technical skill. A lot of people wouldn't really consider that engineering. But I, I have a, a guy who considers himself a SQL developer on my team. And uh, again, not a super technical background, not an engineering background, but one of the most valuable people I've, I've got. I don't know if you remember from Vouch, I think the best engineering that, that we had was John Schatz. He was an English major. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, no, he was, he was amazing. He could scale technology better than, than anyone else I've seen. I'm going to send this podcast directly to him after. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I think... One of the challenges, right? You're, you're coming from a, a place where you don't have this software engineering degree and you feel like you don't have this legitimacy or the standing. It's not binary like that. I was really surprised when I'd be in, in meetings with engineers and because I had hobbied around with SQL or some, some technology that maybe they were less familiar with, I was able to propose technical solutions. You don't have to be a diehard technical person to mesh on the, on the technical side. So your question was, right, how did I move into tech with kind yeah. of a, an MBA? And Econ and MBA, yeah. I had a technology startup. I hired some engineers. I had to get rid of the engineers. You know, I, I became a little more technical. That led me into a product management job at, at PayPal. That startup was called gmoney.com, by the way. Uh, <laughs> G standing for group. Very classy. <laughs> yeah. Group money, not gangster. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and we wound up um, selling a chunk of our company or our assets to PayPal. So if you go to gmoney.com right. today, it resolves to, to PayPal, which is kind of nice. That yeah. ended up really well for you to end up at PayPal after that, in that time. Yeah. yeah early 2000s. An, yeah, that was an amazing place to be. There were the most skilled and talented people I've ever met in my whole career, you know, except Vouch, of course. Okay. okay good. <laughs> hey, I have um, to say that Vouch really was like, what a lucky place for me to start my career as well with all of you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, Vouch was great. PayPal, that was like a magic time. You know, you met the old PayPalians at Vouch, right? Bill and Yi. And- yeah, exactly. Right. So that sort of got me started in a, in a technical career. And I do think that is a great entrepreneurism or even if you're not going to start a company, just having a project or something that you're passionate about, building something is central to understanding the mindset at a lot of these startups. Great. That's actually a really great leeway into my next question, which is you transition through product management. And this is something that I see a lot of people without engineering degrees wanting to transition into to be closer to the tech side of a company. What do you think makes a really great product manager, especially one without that kind of engineering background? 
product management has gone through these sort of phase changes over time. Like a long time ago, in the early 2000s, product management was like everything. To be a good product manager, you had to be a great designer. You had to be able to talk to the engineers. You kind of did like everything. And over time, software has become more specialized. Everyone has sort of has up-leveled their, the, the game of their function. You have engineers that are not just order takers. They contribute to the product and they think about how it's going to work and, and design, right? So design used to be, you know, was a function that came out of the, um, the publishing industry. Make this thing pretty used to be the instructions. But designers now, are, right, they're designing experiences. And a lot of that has come off of the plates of the product managers. In theory, this is great, right? Because it frees up the product manager to become more of a true GM of the product. You don't have to be a great designer, a great content person, a great, right? You don't have to write the copy for your, your product anymore because you have people who can do that for you. The ability to communicate at a 10,000 foot level, at a 100 foot level, at a 1,000 feet, you know, at one foot level, that, you know, that ability to, to, to zoom in and out is so important for your product career. You have to be able to pull back and understand what, um, what it is that your boss needs to see at a, in summary level, what their boss needs to see. Your roadmap, you should have it at a, a story level for the engineers. You should have the, the six slide version for, for your boss. You should have the one slide version for their boss. You know, the three bullet version for, you know, for, for the CEO. That communication side is, I think, maybe one of the most underrated skills that's, that's needed in, in product. For a long time, the vogue in product management was to hire these really technical product managers. You wanted people who could communicate with the engineers. I would say that as the engineering function has kind of advanced and become more proactive in software development process, other skills have become, that has become less important to be a technical product manager. And the thing that's becoming more and more important is having data-capable product managers, a product manager who is able to look at a product and make not gut-driven decisions, but data-driven decisions. And so that is, that's the skill that I, I see more and more. You know, when I look around at the product managers that we've got, the ones that are really successful, that really are, are good at, for, at in advocating for their product and driving the roadmap and championing resources, it's the ones that are, understand data, how to get it, how to use it, how to interpret it. Yeah, everything that you've said so far, it sounds like for communication, for being able to plan to get people behind you and also making data-driven decisions seem pretty relevant no matter what role people are in. It's a way that you can branch into product from almost any role by displaying those skills and looking to transition. Do you think that's true? Yeah, yeah. In fact, let's just say your ability to advocate for customers through product design is augmented by your ability to interpret data. So let's say you work in customer support and you want to make a transition to product management. Well, the thing to do is to identify a theme, right? Hey, all these customers are having a, an issue with X or Y or Z. Just build the plan, right? Put on your product manager hat and say, all right, mm -hmm. well, in order to solve this, 
right? I can see they're running into the problem in this part of the product, but that wouldn't happen if I, if I go back three steps and I think about the experience, you could get together with a designer to say, hey, help me think through, you know, how would you redesign this micro piece of the experience so that I don't get all these phone calls or people are angry because they didn't understand X or Y or Z. Or get together with the content person to rewrite that part of the experience. You can be proactive from just about any part of the company and take on those, that like functionality. What you'll find is that it's really easy to complain about things and throw them at the product managers and say, hey, this stuff isn't working. What's really hard is to make a data-driven, cohesive argument to say, this thing is wrong and this is the right way to fix it. You know, out, out yeah. of all the alternatives, this is the, the one way to do it. That's something I think just about anyone can do. You can reach into that yeah. from just about anywhere in the, in the company. For sure. I, don't, I think that not only did you give everyone a great opportunity to think about how to transition to product if they so choose, but also highlighted a very important internal company negotiation strategy of being really data-driven. So let's zone a bit more into that because more and more in every single role, people need to be able to understand, read, and interpret data and be able to form cases and arguments around it. So I know that you've built a lot of data teams in many different functions across different companies, including a highly data-driven growth team that I was on. Can you talk about the expanse and scope of data science today? Yeah, sure thing. So I, I've been hiring a lot of people on my product analytics and data science team. One thing has become really clear to me, there is a continuum on this data production cycle. At the one end of it, you're pushing out data insights. And on the other end, you're really just doing this sort of data gathering exercise. And let, let me walk you through kind of each of those steps and, and what's in the middle, because understanding where you are, what you're good at in this data pipeline will really help you understand what to, what to look for, what types of opportunities are, are going to be a good fit. The thing I should stress is that it's rare for someone to be good across this whole spectrum. And you don't need to be, right? It's good and it's, it's probably great for your career to specialize in one area. So at one end, you've got just raw data. We have data sources all over the place. We've got customers calling in with tickets to customer support. Our application is spitting out data. You know, we're hooked into to Mixpanel. We, we, you know, we're getting, I don't know, millions of events a day. We use Salesforce. Our sales team is marking leads as good opportunities or junk or, or what have you. And all this, all this data matters. And it's in this sort of chaotic state. We have a team of data architects and data engineers, and their job is just to wrangle the data into one place so that it's, it's a lot more usable. And there are people that love that job. You write the, the job that, um, that picks up the, the data, maybe does some validity testing, pipes that data into your data warehouse. I've seen people who are great at that job. And I've seen people who gravitate toward that. They're so enamored with the data pipelines and how do you make it efficient, right? There's, there's a lot of, of nuance to that. And it's, it can be really interesting stuff. 
You know, the next step up, there's data modeling, which is, so you, you have a team that creates data in a much more structured way. So typically, like your finance department, they want to cube the data along you know, 13 different dimensions, and the dimensions are very well understood, and they want a, a set of tables that supports that in a rigorous, robust way. And then they'll put tools on top of that, like Tableau. You know, Tableau is great for, for spinning those cubes. Right? So there are, there are people who write requirements for modeled data, and there are people who write the jobs that pull together those modeled data. When you think about modeled data, when you think about doing an analysis, you're kind of working from a, a spreadsheet. And if your data doesn't start off in a spreadsheet format, right, it could be in a table, but as long as it's organized in, in that sort of in rows and columns, it's, it's a lot easier to deal with. And that's what the model data is for, for the most part. Right. I just want to help clarify that a bit for those that have never done data before. Tableau is more of a visualization tool. So it's really gathering like raw data numbers and making it more readable and understandable for the finance team or anyone who doesn't want to look directly at the data itself. Is that yeah. the fair way yeah. to understand the modeling that you were talking about? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. The next sort of step up in this hierarchy is the ad hoc data. Product analytics, this is what we do all day long, which is that the questions you're getting from your product managers are, they don't have known quantities up front. Right? You're constantly exploring new dimensions to the data. You're trying to figure out how to answer questions based on users or clicking this one thing in Mixpanel and we want to know three months later, right, they pay for this other thing or, you know, was it because they talked to this one sales rep who's a superstar? And that requires a lot of this sort of creative ad hoc querying, right? Okay, I'm going to stitch these things together and I'm going to produce a report and it's going to look like this and, and then we're going to be able to, to answer our, our questions. Ad hoc querying skill is... I see that as the bridge between the more technical side of data and the, um, the more business side of, of data. Being able to take those questions and turn it into like, all right, where do I find it? How do I query it out of this crazy data lake that, that we've got? Right. And then the flip side of that is asking those questions. Right? Well, how, you know, which international corridors are the, the, the best corridors for you know, if we if we didn't have Canada, how much worse off would we be? Um, <laughs> we're, we're worse off. We we like Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> no, um, that, that makes sense. My my MBA colleagues are now sort of as we're moving up this hierarchy or towards the insights end of this uh, of the spectrum. That's where my MBA colleagues would would sit. They um would typically be the ones to, to think through the business. What, what are the business drivers? What are the questions that they need to answer in order to, to drive the business forward? And this also becomes much more of the strategic side of the data pipeline. Ultimately, there's a lot of, be, of fun to be had at the far end of this, right? Which is the, you know, the full-on strategy de decisioning, right? You're deciding where's the company going to go based on the, the data that, uh, that you've pulled together. And I will say it takes a long time to get to that part of the spectrum. It's not a, a linear journey, starting with the, writing the ETL jobs. It's much more a 
you should look at the spectrum and understand what's exciting to you. I mean, some people yeah. love just mining the data out. Some people love asking the questions. And understanding that about yourself will help you sort of position whether you're a more of a business analyst or a data analyst. I, yeah, I don't see it as a ladder at all. When you say spectrum, you say that it'll take a long time to be at the strategy side and have the person asking the questions. While I think it's very, very important to have that skill set and ask those questions, whether you're building pipelines, right? The way that you set up the infrastructure of data um, really requires someone, hopefully you a little bit, to contribute to what answers do we want to answer? Like what data to track at all and what should be connected with what? And those are still very critical thinking problems. And it's not just at the top, I think, of the spectrum. Yeah. One, one thing I will say is that the, the people who are able to answer their own questions, right, where they don't have a dependency on a data team, we have a backlog. Take a couple of weeks for us to turn around and answer to someone. And we have product managers that are just, they're great at the sorts of ad hoc queries. And they figure out a way to get the data that they need. And it, it helps them a lot. They're just yeah. able to iterate through questions and answers at a much faster rate. Yeah, for sure. What I learned at Vouch and at Lending Club when I was there is really to develop SQL skills and some data tool background with Looker. And then we use Tableau at Lending Club. Regardless, I was able to gather my own data and not have to message someone on the data team for every all my needs in order to put together a case for the engineering resource, right? So it all connects. However, that seems fairly easy. You have to know some data languages. Like SQL will usually do it, have some familiarity with whatever your company uses. But I think the hard part is learning how to ask the right questions. Something that you taught me was the metric breakdown, breaking down main metrics into submetrics. And that has actually really helped me in so much of my career because you can use that with breaking down why is revenue dropping? Well, what are the things driving revenue? And then you break it down more and more, right? There's like customer acquisition. There's this one specific distribution channel or the specific customer funnel and then break it down to where something might happen or you can even think of it as how do we grow our revenue and you can do the same thing. What other channels can we add? What framework or thought process do you use when thinking up what is the right question to ask? You know, always going back to the goals is it's so important I can't tell you the number of times I've been sitting with one of my analysts and we're, you know, we're, we're just pulling our hair out. We're like, Oh, you know, how do we, how do we answer this question? And then we're like, wait, okay, okay, hang on. Let's just take a step back, think about the goals, and we'll we'll realize that we've we've been worried about some nuance in the data that doesn't really affect the goals. Or maybe we're asking some question that is orthogonal to the end goal that we're trying to achieve. It's a surprisingly difficult thing to discipline yourself to do, to take those steps back, to always reflect back on the what it is that you're, you're actually trying to accomplish. There's almost always a bigger picture. Through that, you can almost always get clarity on what it is, what the next questions are that, that you need to drill down into. Yeah, I can see that. At every question, when you're thinking, when you're debating over something, 
working through something, you have to think whether it is actually a driver towards your ultimate goal. Okay, like let's shift gears a little bit. Because you've been in the industry for so long, (laughs) I'm curious about how the industry of data and data-driven decision-making has evolved over the years that you've been in tech. So starting from, I guess, before the dot-com bust. (laughs) Yeah, well, it used to... Uh, okay, and, and this is how it works at PayPal. I would go to Dan Owing. He was our, our, our data guy. He had his team, and I was a product manager. And I said, hey, you know, here are some things I'd, I'd like to know about my, my product and how it's doing. And Dan would say, great, you know, here's this form, fill it out. And then you know, sometimes it was just months later. Sometimes it just never – because he would always get requests from – the VPs and the right the, right, you know, the, the executives and you know I was always at the bottom of the list. <laughs> so the product managers at PayPal, we we kind of just went on gut, and I think gut was easier in those days because the the world was just a lot more forgiving on user experiences. And you think about tracking funnels and funnel performance and just how central that is to our lives today. A lot of that didn't exist, and so. That's sort of the, the starting point of where I first saw analytics was almost non-existent, right? There have been a lot of great tools that have come in uh, along the way, front-end tools that are better tools for querying out of the, the back-end, right? There are all kinds of tools that promise to structure the data for you, you know, Looker, among others. I want to say in the last two or three years, there's just been an explosion of tools on the market that promise all sorts of AI and, and ML insights. It's one thing that I see more and more is when we're looking at an analysis on churn or conversions or what have you, more and more people are asking the questions, not of, hey, does X drive churn? But the analysts are looking at these things as data science problems. They're not looking for a simple correlation they're looking to figure out, all right, how do I build the logistic regression that gives me comprehensive answers? Or is a random forest uh, the best way to, you know, to, to assess the, this problem? And so those techniques are just becoming more and more commonplace. So we have the volume of data to give us easy answers, quicker answers. The techniques are becoming more sophisticated. The tools, I, I can't even keep up with them. There, there's so many. With all this abundance of tools, and since these tools started coming along after you joined PayPal and much later after that, has it replaced any roles that used to exist and doesn't anymore? And what do you think the future of the data science department that you manage will look like in about five years, five to 10 years? Oh, that's a good question. I think it'll be... We're growing. Everything will be bigger. Data is going to take on more and more of a sort of share of company mindset. But what part of the data area, right? Because I'm sure that these tools, they must be replacing some people, right? They have functionalities. Or do you think all the functionalities are things that you have not been doing before? Well, you know, let me give you an example. I've got someone on my team who goes through all the NPS comments and all the comments that we get in Qualaroo feedback and all these other forums. And she runs through and she tags all these comments with what the themes are, right? That lets us track these things over time. That function 
will be replaced at some point with just automatic tracking. But her role won't go away. She will be the one training the algorithm to say, these are the tags that are important, or this is how you tag, right? I, I will give you some training data on how to tag this. Sure, but maybe and some people that were under her, or you would need less people in that specific area. Yes, but it all comes down to up-leveling, right? So instead of her spending this time on this, you know, this very kind of mundane activity of, of tagging these comments, she's now spending more time looking at the trends and she's spending a lot more time communicating with the product managers to say, hey, here's this trend on, on your area or here's this one customer that, you know, that had this, this heartbreaking comment and I really want to I really want to make sure that this person gets, gets taken care of. Right? It becomes more human and more strategic. Her role just becomes better as a result of the advances that we're seeing. Well, it sounds like you're saying that with the progress of more tools, people are going to be moving to one side of the scope of data science, of being more strategic. Do you think that's true even for the data mining area? Yeah, I think it's going to take a long time to replace the true ad hoc reporting. But some of the data pipelining, sometimes it's really painful. <laughs> there just have to be advances there. <laughs> but yeah, ultimately, it's the, it's the story of human history, right? It's becoming incrementally more strategic. And I think we're just seeing an acceleration in part because of these data tools. So back to when you said that you hope that whoever goes into data science can find their part of that scope or that channel that they think that they would really enjoy. But do you still recommend people going to the data mining side or the visualization side when it is possible that within five years, it could be mostly replaced, that they would have to move up the, mm. towards the strategy side? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the pieces of that puzzle that will change. There's, there's ETL jobs at the far end. Someone is going to figure out a way to move data around you know, in a secure way that is more automated. I, you know, I'd much rather have someone working on those higher level problems than writing the ETL jobs. Yeah, I think it goes both ways now that I think more about it. First of all, it's already really good news for those that are more on the strategic end and therefore more on the non-technical end of things uh, that we're moving more towards prioritizing strategic decisions. But also if we look at examples like Salesforce, it might have replaced a few people that were managing CRMs, but it built up this whole ecosystem around Salesforce. There's Salesforce engineers, there's CRM consultants, there's people that come set up for training, and it built out this whole area. And I think that more data tools can build, make this ecosystem bigger as well and provide more opportunities. I, I agree. Um, but it kind of comes back to it's important to stay relevant which maybe may reflecting back on our conversation, I, you know, I could, I could do a much <laughs> better job of just staying no, on top no. of what the trends are. Yeah. No, I think the conclusion we came to there was that through your work, you're already thinking about how to best solve this problem, right? Because if, let's just say, there's a lot of data tools out there that go beyond what you need currently to solve your problem within data because your company or the product or your customers cannot handle and keep up 
with the speed that data tools are moving at, then these companies are too early and it won't go well for them anyway <laughs> if they're too early. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this like last part of conversation going back and forth. It's been very different than my other podcasts. I feel like I talked a lot more, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is good as well. Well, thank you for such an insightful conversation. So now I have two lightning round questions. Uh, so just <laughs> off the top of your head. No, they're really easy. Don't worry. Don't give me that nervous laughter. <laughs> Number one is what book do you recommend the most to people? Have you recommended the most to people by number of times? <laughs> that doesn't um, mean... <laughs> to, to be clear, number of uh, counts of recommendations, yes. not volume of pages. <laughs> yeah. or, okay. You know, I actually, I don't read a lot of nonfiction books. If what you're looking for is what... No, it can be fiction. I love fiction books. What if I recommended or like really enjoyed um, recently? I like some of the futurism stuff. And I think one that's kind of underrated is um, Counting Heads by David Marusik. He's so brilliantly creative about the, his visualization of the future. It's a worthy read. He throws these crazy ideas at you at a, a mile a minute, a mile a page, dozen, yeah. page, whatever it is. It's, if you like that, the mental exercise of what could the future possibly be like, he's a fun one. Okay, cool. I'll add that to my 2020 reading list. And number two, what has been the best piece of advice that you've been given around your career? Way back in grad school, they told us, our professors told us about the importance of organizational dynamics, understanding organizational behaviors and how to motivate people, right? Understanding this, this sort of people or this business, you know, the, the psychology of a place. And we all ignored that. Right, we were all about the skills, right? Well, right, that's, yeah, that's fine. But we want to understand, right? How do we do finance or stats or marketing or whatever it was? Yeah. We, were, we were very skills focused, and you know, here I am now, the like the age of my old professors, and I it couldn't be more true. Right, just understanding how to communicate, how to fit into the organization. I mean, that is if you're good at that and good at reading people you can fit in anywhere. That's really, really great. I can totally relate to the whole organizational behavior. I don't remember anything from that class, but maybe when I'm your age, I'll be flipping through those textbooks again. But thank you so much, Hugh. This, was, this has been really fun. I really love catching up with you. Yeah, hey, it's, it's been great. If you loved it, have questions, or have any specific topics or regions you'd like me to cover, I love to connect and be friends. Please send me a direct message on Instagram at ivxvine. If this episode has helped you out at all, it would be incredible if you can share it with another non-technical in tech and leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you guys so much and see you in the next episode. <laughs>